Well, thank you so much for joining us. I'm here to welcome you to the Clinical Social Work Journal podcast. And I would like to just introduce our guests and I'm gonna have them introduce themselves and tell you a little bit who they are and um, what sort of brought them to this topic area that we're discussing. We are talking about research and psychoanalytic practice today, which I think is an interesting topic because it is one that is kind of controversial. It's a little nebulous. And I think a lot of people still have many, many preconceived notions about well, what is psychoanalytic theory and do people even use it anymore? And mm, also, mm. is there any evidence behind it? And so mm. your article, which again, will be in the show notes, a link to that. And you can also find the article um, listed in um, on the t- recent table of contents for the journal. And you'll be able to get access to that for the next month after this podcast is released. But with that, I'm going to turn it over to my two guests and let them introduce themselves and say a little bit about who they are and um, what brought them to this particular topic. Great. Thank you so much, Melissa. And thank you for having us. It's, we're excited about it. Um, my, my background well, is... Well, first say your name. Oh, Michael Crocker. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Crocker. And that, thank you for that reminder. Um, I, I, uh, I'm obviously a social worker or, you know, have a social work background. And I also got my doctorate in social work. And I'll say a few quick things. I was, I had training in object relations. So I got, when, when they covered in this very um, quick way, the uh, attachment theory, and that's a whole nother, a whole nother issue of politics, which I'll get into later. But when they when they covered attachment theory, I became really, really riveted by it because I felt that it was so associated to the work that I I do. Um, I work with people that have uh, what they call process addictions. So it could be food, it could be money, it could be sex and so on. And uh, it was my my theory, my hypothesis that when I uh, I went to UPenn and they required you to actually have the idea of what you wanted to study upon entering into the program. And so I had the idea that, that the attachment styles were somehow connected to the, the process addictions. And I looked specifically at sexual behavior that was out of control. I had the theory in my mind that it would just show up as insecure attachment, anxious, avoidant, whatever. The, uh, what, we, what we provide, what evidence we got was that it actually is mostly connected to avoidance attachment, which I'll explain later as we go through this. But that became really exciting to me because that that meant something in terms of the work I do and the way that I do it. The other thing that I'll say uh, is that I, I have a master's in organizational psychology, which is, which is a, uh, a program that was much more research-based. And so I had it, I had it in my veins, you know, I, they, it was part of who I was and I loved it. I loved that degree. And it was a lot more research-based than my social work degree, my, my MSW. That's important and that's significant in terms of why I chose to write the paper. Um, the other piece about the organizational psychology, and then I'll throw it over to Sean, is that um, it's very much systems-based. They're looking at things systemically. My paper, 
pretty much is all about that. It's about the systems. It's about territoriality. It's about um, conflict between schools of thought. And so we'll talk more about that because the what what we were trying to communicate was let's let's get inclusive. Let's see if we can come together in certain ways because are there really that many big differences between these theories? I don't think so. So um, I'll leave it at that. The, the one last thing I'll say is that that we run, Sean's the associate uh, director and also the director of education. He'll talk a little bit about how, how we put this paper together. Um, but I run a program called the SAP Project, which is Sexuality, Attachment and Trauma Project. And uh, we train our staff in attachment theory and affect theory in order to treat the issues that we treat in a particular way. And so that's kind of my introduction. I will say that I wrote the paper. Sean was, a, was very, very instrumental in writing the paper, but also Art Bauer, who has retired living in Maine, was my co-author. And so he and he's been my supervisor for maybe 20 years because I'm still in supervision. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, I wanted to just give a nod to, uh, to Art um, and then I'm going to throw it over to Sean. Hi there. Thanks so much for having us today. Uh, my name is Sean Pecknick. My pronouns are he, him. Um, we, as Michael said, um, uh, I'm the associate director at the Sexuality, Attachment and Trauma Project. Um, I actually was somewhat involved um, in Michael's research 10, 12 years ago at uh, UPenn. And the SAP project really was formed out of that research. Um, and slowly we've grown Actually, the, the program grew very slowly for several years and then very quickly over the last couple of years as the need for mental health uh, services has sort of exploded in this country. And, and, and thanks to you. Well, and well, we've, we've invested we've invested in growing the program and and mentoring um, younger earlier career therapists uh, in sort of the knowledge that Michael has has accrued through the years. Uh, I also have an organizational psychology background, so research and um, theory around those sorts of things was very interesting to me as well. Um, and now, uh, as Michael said, we use attachment theory and other trauma-related psychodynamic psychotherapies to treat out-of-control sexual behavior, to treat um, lots of issues that relate around gender and sexuality. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I was involved in, so Michael and I have actually written three or four articles now together, but this one, uh, I was just an editor on sort of helping Art and Michael um, conceive of sort of how, how to sort of express what was what was in the paper. Well, Sean, Sean was a uh, theater director in the past, so he really knows how to tell a story. I try and to bring so, a little storytelling to everything I and do. He, and he did a great job. And the... Uh, the other part of the story that I think is just a fun part of the story is that that we were going to Art's, uh, Art Bauer's place in Maine in order to continue to work on the article. And we pretty much wrote it in the car mm -hmm. as we there were was, driving, as we were driving to Maine. There was about 15 <laughs> pages of notes that slowly coalesced over an eight hour drive to uh, to Maine. <laughs> well, one of the things um that I think would be helpful for our audience is if you could, in just a couple quick sentences, say what would what would you say are the main points of your article? What would what are some of the real kernels 
that yeah. you can share with our audience so that they have a pretty clear picture of what you were trying to accomplish in the article and and what what would you say you actually at the end of the day said it's a great question and i'll let sean jump in as well but i think the what we were what we were going for is the idea of bringing together psychoanalytic theory with with social science and that that we believe that if you look at attachment theory, there was a lot of social science in it. Bowlby was the one that kind of came up with it, but he was marginalized because it was technically unpsychoanalytic because it wasn't Freudian. And so mm -hmm. he was, as, as uh, Robert Karen says in, in the book on attachment, um, he was airbrushed out of history. And so the other, the other uh, theorists that came in was Ainsworth and Maine and so on. And so the, the fact that it was, it was so politicized and marginalized is part of the reason why we wanted to write this article to say, like, let's bring these two schools of thought together or many schools of thought together. Let's do that. Let's bring it together. Let's, let's uh, connect the dots, so to speak. And that was what we really wanted to do. We wanted to show that we can actually be inclusive. We can actually be inclusive. We don't have to be so territorial. And that, and that we can bring together the idea of the scientific method with the, arti the uh, artistic psychoanalytic work. And that really is the, the, what the goal was of the paper. And when you're talking about bring things together, you're really talking about the various theories under the umbrella of psychodynamic theories. So you're talking about the Freudians, you brought in Fairbairn, you mm. were talking about, you had Melanie Klein, you mentioned. Um, and so you're talking about everything from the beginning of the, when Freud first started up until sort of more of this affect theory piece. Absolutely. Yeah. And one, one of the pieces that struck me in reading the article was that I think one of your take home points and correct me if I'm wrong on this was that because there, every time somebody tried to do something different or frame things in a slightly different way, it was seen as anti and against. Right. And so as a result, they weren't brought in and this fracturing mm -hmm. may have contributed to the lack of research mm -hmm. that was being done because there was infighting within the different psychoanalytically oriented camps. Mm -hmm. yeah. And because of this fracturing, there wasn't a unified purpose. There wasn't a unified um, goal of trying to show the scientific merit of some of the different pieces. Right, right. That's is exactly that, right. Is that a fair summary? Of oh, that, that's a very good summary. And it is about bringing together all these school, schools of thought and recognizing that there's so much overlap and that the idea that, that so much of like Bowlby's work, Bowlby took a risk and he knew he might be abandoned, which I think is an interesting way he thought about it, <laughs> considering uh -huh. it was all about attachment theory. He risked abandonment and he, he was a, a man that experienced his own abandonment. And so he risked it, but plenty of people wouldn't even take the risk. They just went mm -hmm. along with the nomenclature of Freudian ideas because they didn't want to take the risk of being 
kind of marginalized because it was so politicized. Yeah. And so that's really part that, you know, it's not necessarily a political paper, but in some ways it is in the sense of we are saying like, come on, let's come together, which I think is an interesting, as I'm free associating right now, it's an interesting way of thinking about the paper, considering what we're dealing with in our world right now in terms of inclusivity and all that. So that's just a, a an association. Yeah, I, I think I think as you start to look at these theories, you realize like there were political reasons why certain theories took stronger, took more people sort of accepted them. Then there's also like all the semantic stuff where like some of the theories are building on the same language as like drive theory, but sort of changing the purpose as well. And so then you get into like both a fracturing and also just a little bit of confusion about like, is this the same? Are you are you discussing the same theory here? Are you not? Are, is this a different idea? Um, and I was just thinking about the Greenberg and Mitchell book. Uh, Greenberg and Mitchell wrote a book on object relations that really tracks like all the different people that wrote about object relations. And as you start to look at how ideas took place, you realize like people like Fairbairn and Bowlby were sort of outside of the British psychoanalytic society. And so their ideas didn't quite filter in the same way as Klein's and Anna Freud's and, and the folks that were maybe on the inside at that time. And I think Michael's work overall has really been focused on like, let's stop thinking about the differences between these things. Let's start thinking about how they overlap and overlay and what's useful about each of the different pieces that we can bring into the work that we're doing with clients. Makes sense. The one thing I'll say, though, that I think is so interesting, and we put it in the paper, is Fairbairn, yeah, he, he came up with a different idea. He looked at things differently, but he didn't change the language. He was, he was I, I'm making this up, I don't know, but I think he had a great deal of anxiety about changing the language, just like Bowlby did. Bowlby did it and took the risk. Fairbairn was saying that, that we have a drive for connection with objects, that we it's object seeking, but he didn't change a lot of the other language. Politics, mm -hmm. politics, politics. It reminds me a little bit of the common factors literature of what you're talking about, that there's that for listeners who don't know, the common factors literature has been, it's a body of literature that basically looks at what are the essential factors or essential ingredients across all models of psychotherapy across cognitive theory, across cog uh, cognitive, behavioral, DBT, all the alphabet soups, you know, CBT, DBT, EFT, et cetera. <laughs> and that they, they look at what are the essential ingredients that cross cut these different theories and have been able to come up with a very robust body of literature mm -hmm to demonstrate that there are some commonalities, including hope, expectancy, technique mm. is part of it, but it's really, mm. you'll see any, in anywhere from 10 to 15% of what contributes to the total outcome, but the relationship between the client and the clinician, the professionalism, the follow-up of the clinician, um, being able to tune in. I mean, there are all these different factors that regardless of which model, tend to contribute to the outcomes. And it sort of what you're saying reminds me a little bit of that. And mm -hmm. I think Daniel Siegel's work um, and, um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on his name all of a sudden, the 
psychologists out of um, Colorado, it'll come to me, um, that have looked at the broader scope of psychoanalytic literature and mm. being shown to shown that there is effectiveness when you take it as a whole, mm. as opposed to, as you, as you were talking about, sort of these bifurcated chunks. Mm-hmm. Um, I also really appreciated one of the things you talked about is Freud. Whenever I teach Freud, I always talk about, like, we have to put him in the context of his time. And he did a lot of damage. He did a lot of damage to women. Mm -hmm. He did a lot of damage to people of different sexual orientations. Mm -hmm. He, he did a lot of damage and I don't want to take that away, but I do also want to put it in perspective that he was a Jewish man in Vienna during the Nazi period. Mm -hmm. And I appreciated what you talked about is his attempt to take his current theory that he was developing and put it into a framework of Newtonian physics, basically, that there's energy and there's a finite amount of energy. So, and you framed it about his, the drives and the discharge of the drives. And I, I hadn't really thought about it that way. And I appreciated that angle of being able to think about, this is another instance where Freud is clearly a product of his time Mm -hmm. in trying to translate these ideas that he's developing and make them fit into this paradigm that was in front of him. Right. And it wasn't a great fit. Right. And, and that may have, again, set us back, set us being the psychodynamically trained people that may have set us back a little bit or a lot just like some of his penis envy ideas and ideas about women's development and trauma. Right. Um, right. And so that was another interesting spin. And I was wondering what, how you feel like those kinds of missteps may have contributed to this mm-hmm. challenge well, I, that psychologically yeah. oriented clinicians still have mm-hmm. about whether or not well, does it work? And is there any evidence behind it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, to, uh, to your point, I think what's what's really interesting is that, yes, he was trying to fit something in to a, to a way, to a con- the conceptualizations of the day and uh, of the time. But then other theorists were doing the same thing with their theories in fitting it in with Freudian theory. Mm-hmm. And so for that, for that reason, they're- they Can you became- say more about that? What do you mean by that? Yeah, that 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 um, that even let's go to Fairbairn, for example. He had a different idea, but then he still used the language of Freud. Um, uh, Melanie Klein, she had a very different timeline, obviously, about how people develop and some of the fantasies and so on. But but she stuck with the with the Freudian model. And I think that part of what we're trying to say in the article is that that's a dilemma in and of itself and that we are trying to break free from that now by saying, let's bring in social science. Let's bring in other ideas that people have had that may not be the fit in terms of psychoanalytic theory, but very, very important uh, contribution to psychoanalytic theory. And mm-hmm. that's, that's really the essence of, of what we were writing and what we wanted people to, to understand. And then to see that we can bring in the artistry of psychoanalysis and the science 
that we're seeing now related to attachment mm -hmm. theory, related to affect theory, the work of Dan Hill, the work of Bowlby, the work of Ainsworth, the work of Tompkins, Nathanson, names that most people wouldn't even know. Tompkins mm -hmm. in, in particular, which drives me and Art Bauer crazy because we'll see affect theory being cited, but they, they never mention it. Mm -hmm. you know, so another... Go well, on. I think I think what's interesting about Freud is that he was trying to fit it into this Newtonian physics idea, and he also wasn't interested in really backing it up in science. He was like, "These are my thoughts. These are my feelings. Anecdotally, this is what I see happening." And obviously, there's like many brilliant things that came out of that, right. and also there was a lot of like speculation about like. What do dreams mean? And what are people communicating in sessions? And what is what are what are what is the the drive for lust? And and you know what does it mean? And and, I, and I, make sure they lay down. And make sure they lay down and don't. <laughs> Which look is at really me different. And, yeah, right. Really different once we get into talking about affect theory. Yeah, um, and and as Michael and Art wrote in the paper, the sort of counter-transferential stuff that Freud was dealing with of like, I don't want to be looked at all day long by, you know, all these people all week. So let's try the couch. And obviously there's wonderful things that can happen in that setting. But I, but I, I think that, you know, psychoanalytic theory sort of started moving into this like anecdotal here are thoughts and we're just going to say, this is what it is. And, and lost, like, well, how do we actually study these things and how do we research them and how do we make them robust enough that we can say like, there's, there's something that's behind this. Um, and that's mm -hmm. where I think Michael and Art are trying to like fuse these thinkers that were like much more research oriented, Mary Main and Ainsworth and uh, Beatrice Beebe and Tronic and all these people that were really studying in laboratories in research centers, how connection works with the Kleins and the Fairbairns and the and the Freuds that had all this like wonderful thinking. Mm -hmm. So why do you think we're still struggling today? I mean, we you mentioned managed care briefly in your article and how one one of the things that I dispel my students of is that they think, oh, if I learn psychodynamic theory, I'm never going to get paid, and I. <laughs> That's never been my experience. Um, I, I actually have never had an insurance company other than I think when in very this brief window in the 90s when um, insurance companies were demanding that you pick something off a, a list. Mm -hmm. um, but insurance companies, in my experience, don't ask what modality. They want to see a treatment plan. They want to see outcomes. They want to see that. But they're not necessarily asking which modality you're using. But why do you think we're still, you know, over a century later, struggling with demonstrating that this approach has merit, this approach has value, this approach has empirical backing? Yeah, yeah. You know, one, one thing that, that has struck me, and Sean could speak to this as well, is like, this is not taught in many, many social work schools. It is fading. It's fading out of the. It's, it's fading. fading out of the curriculum. I I teach at uh, Toro College for their their graduate social work uh, program. I developed a psychodynamic uh, syllabus. It never existed before, ever. I'm the first mm -hmm. one to bring it in. 
And so that's striking to me is, is how much that is missing. And I will say, and we've seen this with some of our new associates, is a lot of people will come out of, out of grad school with minimal knowledge of attachment theory and absolutely no knowledge. <laughs> this has been my experience. Again, it's anecdotal. No knowledge of affect theory. And, and when you really read about it and you, re you really let yourself be dive in to attachment theory and affect theory, it just makes so much sense. And that there's data. We get to see data. And that's, you know, that Bowlby started that, you know, with his, his article, The 44 uh, Thieves, Juvenile right. Thieves. He wrote that and he even did data in it. I mean, it's like amazing. He was like one of the first uh, psychoanalysts to do that. So we have data, but again, I think it's not, it's not presented. And what, what students have to do in order to get exposed to psychodynamic theory, they have to go to an institute. And I'm not against people going to an institute. I'm just saying it's so interesting to me that many of my students will say, I don't know what to do. Where should I go? Mm -hmm. What's the difference between going to the White Institute versus, you know, Object Relations Institute versus Mitchell's Institute? And it's like they don't know. They know a little bit more now because I'm teaching this course, but it's an elective. Not everyone's going. So mm -hmm. I think that's a big part of the problem. Sean, did you have other ideas? Yeah, I mean, I think I think psychodynamic psychotherapy is extremely effective and also takes time and takes sitting in unknown with people <laughs> and takes yeah. like not knowing when the breakthrough is going to happen. <laughs> um, you know, we, Michael has a very strong attachment lens and attachment trauma is not healed in eight to 10 sessions. You know, it mm -hmm. takes time for attachment trauma to be healed with someone that has had really significant neglect or um, or or loss or or other types of trauma in their story. And I do think I do think that the medical model has slipped in with like we need you to have a treatment plan that has a diagnosis code, and you know, within ten to fifteen sessions, we can see marked improvement in the client. Um, and then you can either come up with a new treatment plan because a new diagnosis is needed or, you know, but, but the thought of like, we are slow, like one in our last um, training that we put together, we were focusing on a paper that Sheldon Bach wrote, and he was really drawing on these ideas of like, you're holding your clients, you're building you're building a developmental step with them where you're becoming their ability to have reflective function in psychodynamic psychotherapy. And in order to do that, you have to sort of share mind space for some given amount of time as they develop, just like a mother would, as they develop the ability to have their own reflective functioning. And that's just, it's, it's sort of ephemeral. And like, also we know that it works. <laughs> right. And I will say, I, I will say that, that our, the model that we use is very much about developing reflective function and not to be reductionistic, but it's, it is the same thing as helping people to develop emotional literacy. Yeah. It's that mm -hmm. important. If I say to my patients, if you don't know what you feel, you don't know what you need. And so we often, and we often see that the, the, the uh, patients that come into our program 
to throw in some object relational ideas is that they are in the paranoid schizoid position that Melanie Klein described, where there's much more pr primitive defense mechanisms. Uh, there's defense against grief, defense against regret, defense against guilt, defense, defense, defense. And so a lot of our work, we do a lot of combined treatments. So they're in individual and group, and sometimes individual and couples, um, and sometimes individual and family. <laughs> so we, we do a lot of like all these different types of treatment models. But that is, the goal is to move, to move, even though I'm very attachment theory based and I'm very affect theory based, I do believe in the, the phases that Melanie Klein was talking about. Timeline, I'm not sure I agree with that, but to move them into the depressive position where they then struggle more emotionally because they're finally entering into the world of regret and, and sadness and grief. But that's definitely a model that we use. And it's very, very important when you're working with people with process addictions. Mm -hmm. Well, a couple of things strike me as you were speaking. One is the um, students, I think you're right. They, they like, it's, it's scary. Psychodynamic is, is not all, not all theories, not all models, I should say, models of intervention are unstructured, but there it does rely more on tuning in, use of self, being reassociating, being very aware of, of, of you as the primary tool. Um, we if if we I always say if we grow and develop in the context of relationships, then we grow and develop and change also in the context of relationships, which Absolutely. means therapeutic relationship. And one of the things that when students say, oh, I just love CBT and I love CBT, I'm, I'm, I'm also, I, I say psychodynamic was my first love, but I, I definitely, <laughs> I have a, a love of CBT and I use it in my own practice. And one of the things that I'll say is when they say, oh, I love it. I say, well, do you love it because it really fits for you? Or do you love it because it gives you something to do mm. and it provides you with the structure when you're not sure of what to do? That's um, a right. question I will raise just to say, right. tell me, I, I often say when you're learning new theories, it's like finding a good pair of jeans. You know, there's a thousand different options out there. And as soon as you find that pair of jeans that just fit you right and you go, this is great. I say, then question, why do I love this so much? Mm, that's great. And it's not to say throw it away, right? but do I love it because it fits with my own worldview? And is that going to be right for everybody? Mm -hmm. right. Or does it, does it fit because it quells my own anxiety? Right. So is that right. the right reason to love this theory? The other thing is that I think that um, I want to just do a big shout out to Jeff um, Shedler. He was the psychologist in Colorado. I couldn't think of before. And mm. Peter Fonaghy mm. at oh. the Freud Institute, who have, I think, provided the world with incredible research about the effectiveness of psychodynamically approached, psychodynamically oriented approaches with Fonaghy and Bateman's model of mentalization. You talked about yeah. emotional literacy. Yep. 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 All of that is yep. filled in. And I think if if our listeners are really interested in looking, and we can try and put some of this in the show notes, some of the research on the effectiveness of psychodynamically oriented approaches, 
Josh Shepard and Peter Fonagy. Great. Amazing resources. And I think they've done exactly what you're advocating for in this article, yeah. which is let's look at it as a gestalt. Mm-hmm. Let's look at it as a whole, a meta view versus mm-hmm. these fractured camps mm-hmm. um, that historically mm-hmm. you lay out in your paper mm-hmm. existed. And I think they are looking at this more holistic way of viewing it. Mm-hmm. I agree. I'm a big Fonagy fan. So mm-hmm. just great to even hear his name. But uh, two things I wanted to say, or maybe the first thing that I'll focus on about what you were saying about why do you like this theory? The way that that I've thought about it is that in some cases, and I think you're saying the same exact thing, it's counter-transferential. It's a way to feel like you don't have to Mm. float along with Mm -hmm. with the patient and that that's not easy. And as Sean was saying about the not knowing, I think about beyond saying, don't take notes. Do not review notes. Go into the session not knowing. That's a tough thing for, for a graduate student to hear. They'll be like, wait, what? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. And so I think that that's why my wish would be that there would be more psychodynamic conversations in grad school so that they can understand this better and also that it could alleviate some of the fear because I think it is a lot of fear it's a lot of fear one of the things I will often say to students is I think it's really important to have a family theory that you feel very comfortable with because you're going to be working in systems and having that lens I think it's really important to have a skills-based theory in your toolbox like CBT or DBT or PCIT, again, a thousand different alphabets. And, but I said, you also, I think you have to have a relational theory that you feel good about because going back to that common factors literature, the largest percentage of what contributes to positive outcomes in psychotherapy is the combination of the client factors and the clinician factors. Most people say it's up to 70%. And if you're not attending to that unique relationship, you're, and the working alliance inventory is another great tool that people can use to really measure that. I also really love Scott Miller's outcome rating scales, Mm -hmm. session rating scales to really check in and attend. Mm -hmm. Really, you're you're tending the garden of that relationship. And unless you're really informed in some of these relational principles, you're not going to, you're not going to have the quality of that relationship. So I think it's important for, for symptom relief to have some skill-based ones that you can offer right away. But if you're not, if, if your foundation is not around how to support and nurture, and again, create that holding environment where people can really grow, it's, you're not going to get the same quality of outcomes in, right. in my, again, oh. my humble opinion. I we, totally agree. Yeah. And this, this is where attachment theory comes in, at least for us, yeah. is that, right. that, that what you were saying before about therapeutic alliance and how significant that is. And I, I've said in my class, when I, when I teach attachment theory, I've said, this is about therapeutic alliance. Once mm-hmm. we, if you can understand that someone's coming into your session with an anxious attachment style that's informative and you can you can 
in many ways maneuver in a relational way how to create a relationship with with someone like that. And if you don't, if you don't know that, if you don't know the theory, I think it's a little bit more haphazard. It's mm. like, I don't mm. know where to go. And same thing for avoidantly attached people. So they can come into our into sessions and they could be incredibly dismissive. I have a hundred examples. If you're not trained in it, then you're just going to think, oh, this, this person is just so dismissive. How am I going to work with them? I don't even want to work with them. But a lot of the work that we do is training the, the staff to understand those attachment styles in order to build the therapeutic alliance, not to put them in a box. Because I don't, you know, I think attachment styles are fluid. They can change based on who you're interacting with to some degree. Um, there's certain aspects of it that are pretty predictable. But I think our work is really to A, develop that alliance by having the knowledge of attachment theory and then creating the reflective function mm-hmm. and the movement towards the depressive position. And, and I would also include that you really listen to the affects that are being presented in the room so that you can start to work with those affects. I mean, what Michael is so, I think, brilliant at is, is really latching on to where positive affect is starting to occur once the therapeutic alliance exists uh, and, and drawing that out of the clients and, and helping them to sort of, Michael always says, all the affects need to be expressed, positive ones need to be encouraged, mm-hmm. um, you right. know, and right. we get into all the semantics of, you know, we talk about the Win- Winnicott's transitional space. Fonagy's mentalization, mm-hmm. uh, reflective functioning, right? We're, it's all the same. It's what you're saying. It's like, it's, it's relational. It's the relationship. Yep. Um, and once you develop that relationship and really land in it and sit in it and navigate like 50, you know, 50 minutes together in, in that space over and over again, you really start to see people learning how to, how to make choices on their own, learning how to be reflective and have mentalization about their life and and how to be relational and to think about yeah. their own future. Right. And to think about yeah. like imagining their own future, which some people struggle with. Yeah. Well, like I said, for me, the crux is if we, if you have, I, I always want my students to link the explanatory theory to the change theory. Mm. And if you mm. believe that we grow in the context mm. of relationships, mm-hmm then the change theory has to be mm-hmm. in, in that context. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, so, absolutely. And if you think, you know, if you think that change, if you think the reason that people's problems are existing because of cognitive distortions or cognitive processes, well, then the change theory needs to mm. connect to those cognitive processes. Mm. But for many people, I think if, if trauma and adversity and other significant life effects events occur in the context of those relationships, then many people, I think, can argue that that means that that growth and healing and um, connection and empathic attunement has to happen also in the context of those relationships. Right, right. So we're, we're getting close to time, but I want to give each of you um, just one last shot of giving us a final take-home message that you would want the readers to to walk away with and think about either from this podcast or from your article or any other, um, any other thought from your practice related to this topic. 
I, the one thing that I'm going to plug is uh, uh, Sylvan Tompkins and Donald Nathanson. People should read their theories, their ideas, because th talk about marginalization. They were put underground. Many people don't know the names. Uh, Nathanson did an incredible job of understanding in a deeper way, wrote a book called Prime, uh, Pride and Shame and understanding shame in a different way that shame shows up in multiple ways where you attack yourself, but sometimes you attack others. He wanted to get this into the school systems to start to intervene with kids so that they could understand shame and, and the impact of it. He was trying to push for it right before Columbine. So mm. it, what's it, and it never got, he, he was never able to do it. There, there's no, there's no um, curriculum on shame. And yet shame is showing up in the bullying, in the self-attack, in the eating disorders, in the cutting, in the, you name it. And so I plugged that because people don't know them. <laughs> and I'm like, get so frustrated about it. But we also have our mission. We're like making sure people know about it. We did a presentation recently and used a lot of Tompkins and Nathanson. So that's my plug. Okay, well, hopefully in the show notes, you can send me some materials that Absolutely. we can share with our listeners so that they have access and can spread the word about these theorists. Great. Tompkins I, has a website that I can also send to you hmm. that you get all, you, there's no charge. You just go get his articles and things like that. It's That's called great. the Tompkins Institute. So I'll send you a link for that. Okay, great. Sean. I think, I think my, my plug would be you know, if you're more psychodynamic, psychotherapy oriented, bring some scientific theory into your work. If you're more scientific theory oriented, bring some artistry and looseness and unknown of psychodynamic psychotherapy into your work. We, um, we actually have a website uh, that we use that has uh, about 10 assessments on it. It has the trauma symptom inventory. It has um, the adverse childhood experiences. It has the compass of shame scale. So, and we could share a link to that if you want to yeah. like poke around in some of that. All You'll great see, like, stuff. The assessments that we actually use that have scientific backing. And I also just want to make a quick plug for our play and positive affect inventory, which is another tool that Michael created um, that he uses with clients to just help generate like uh, topics to talk about and have clients start moving into connecting to their own positive affect. Um, right. And so we'll share a link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you both so much. And I really appreciate you being here. And um, I look forward to more conversations. Great. Same. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you. This is our pleasure. I really appreciate yeah. it. This is great. Okay. Bye.